God went to a lot of effort to get you here today, and there's some reason. Uh, so uh, thanks for following through and uh, making the effort. Here's your warm-up question today. Um, how do you know what's true? We'll just start with a, you know, an easy question, a low-ball question. In life, how do you know what's true? How do you know what's true? I'm going to give you eight seconds to think about it and be all brilliant and stuff. How do you know what's true? Think. great answers up in here. <laughs> Mia's looking nervous. Classic. I know he's going to pick on me. I know he's going to pick on me. All right, Mia, what's your answer? How do you know what's true? Because he said so. Because he said so. Because Jordan said so. <laughs> no? No? Because the Lord said so. The Lord said so. Because the Lord, so you know what's true. Uh, you kind of filter it through uh, what uh, God has said, and you kind of measure stuff against that. That's not bad. That's a pretty Christian answer. That's a very Christian answer. That's pretty good. All right, how do you know what's true? Because it works over time. Yeah, I think a deceptively brilliant answer. Um, the, the cruel fact is you might not know what's true, but you test things, right? You try things. At Blue Water, we say that faith is trying, uh, which uh, I like because there's sort of a humility in that, actually. It's like, well, that could very well be true. Uh, let me go explore it and see where it goes. And then over time, it becomes the fancy philosophical word is reified. Uh, you start to prove it over and over again. Uh, all right, what else? How do you know it's, how do you know it's true? It you have to see it to believe it. See it to believe it. Uh, Candace doesn't believe anything that she cannot see and touch. Yeah. Uh, we need one in every crowd. Uh, but another, another way of proving, sure, you know, it goes to experience. Uh, the philosophical question that follows that is, uh, how do you know you can trust what you see and what you trust? There's a whole branch of philosophy about that, but interesting. Uh, how do you know it's true? Who else has an answer? Yes. Discernment, which is a fancy word that means what? Discernment. I don't know, but it's a great word, man. It's a great word. Trust, trust your gut? Trust your gut? You use experience in a new situation to discern. Wherever you, when, when it's a, a fancy word and you see that die in front of that, that's going to mean like two or it's going to mean like divide. So to separate one thing from the other is kind of, you know, that's kind of like the root uh, of discernment. Because uh, it's as if you're saying one of the ways you know what's true is to figure out what's false, uh, uh, which is pretty smart. Couple more answers. Who's got the best answers? Validation. Validation, which is a fancy word that means triangulation. triangulation. <laughs> Craig is a business and leadership consultant, and now you know why. Now you know why. He can use those fancy words really confidently. You're like, yeah, that guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Triangulation. 
So not, not one point of evidence or data, but multiple points of evidence or data. It took you 18 years to figure that out. Is today your anniversary? Wow. wow. There's a lot there's a lot going on in that answer, Craig. But you did at the end manage to honor your wife. So well done. Well done, brother. Well done. Wow. It's been eighteen years so far. Okay, who's got the best answer? You've been saving it to last. Yes, way in the back. How old are you? Um, here's some information. Say it again? You know it's true because it's true whether you believe in it or not, uh, which is a, a loaded answer that you could kind of unpack. But I think there's a lot of human experience in that answer. Like, you know it's true because you tried to not think it's true, and it turned out that it was true. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, social scientists call that the hard test. The hard test. Put it in the, in, in the toughest context that you can. And if after all the bashing and disbelief, it turns out to be true anyway, you can pretty, pretty much trust it. Good, great answers. You guys are so smart. Uh, we're going to do this sermon series uh, that I have uh, prosaically titled, There is a God and His Ways are Really Smart. Um, and the point of the sermon series is to convince you, uh, well, I'm going to step through a few things. Number one is like, I'm going to convince you that the world is intentionally lying to you that there is a machine, you know, the machine that we're supposed to rage against, that machine. There is a machine. There is a machine. Uh, and um, and it's, it's lying. It's lying rather habitually. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, and then uh, we're going to talk about how the reasons that you might have to disbelieve in God, which is to say the reasons you've been told are good reasons to disbelieve in God, are actually pretty lame. They're like balloons that you can just kind of pop. So reasons to disbelieve are bad. And then we'll talk about how reasons to believe in God are actually pretty good. Pretty good, right? Uh, even though you've been told otherwise. Uh, then we're going to take a look at some of today's big moral questions. And um, we're going to show that they're actually best answered with godly choices. That God's ways actually are really smart uh, answers uh, for the big moral questions of today. And all of this uh, I'm going to do to try to convince you to decide for God. I'll just be upfront uh, about that. Not to believe in God, which is the easy part, but to decide for God, right? To decide to follow him and to commit. Uh, that's what we're going to work on today. Uh, I'm just kind of doing this stage setting uh, sermon um, in, in which we kind of just Set the mood, you know, set the context. Because here's the reality. Christianity, what we've come to call Christianity, you know Christianity was a term invented by Jesus' opponents to characterize his followers, right? So Jesus' followers didn't even invent it. Um, Jesus' followers is probably uh, a good term, or believers. But we come to call it Christianity, sort of the system that goes with following Jesus. Christianity is easy to mock. It is. It's actually fairly easy to mock. You can make fun of it until you really look at it. Until you really look at it. This is by design. 
which is to say, I think God designed it this way. And today we're going to talk about some reasons uh, that 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 is is the case. Um, One of the big questions that anybody should have when investigating God or the existence of God for the first time is, well, why isn't he obvious? Why isn't he obvious? And it turns out that from A to Z, the Bible goes about telling us why God isn't obvious and why he's designed the world in such a way that you actually have to seek and investigate. Um, And part of that method means that there's going to be space in which you can just mock him. You can just mock Christianity and stuff like that. This is all by design. Um, and uh, and you kind of it, it helps to know that going in if you're investigating faith or looking for ways to fortify your own faith in an age that does not respect your faith at all. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. Man, I used to be totally steeped in the world of, of worldly wisdom. I was just really dedicated to knowledge, and part of that came from a deep spiritual place in me. I think that's still how the Lord has programmed me, but, you know, I, I went off to college, went to a good school, and then I decided to go on and get my Ph.D., and um, I uh, did my uh, graduate work at the University of Chicago. I went to some good schools. Uh, you might not believe it, uh, knowing me now, but... Uh, I did my undergrad at Stanford, which is a pretty good school. I did my postdoc at Harvard, which they say is a pretty good school. And I did uh, my PhD work at the University of Chicago, which is by far and away the best school I ever went to. I think far and away the best school in America. Uh, Super academic, ruthlessly intellectual. And uh, after a tough transition, I came to really love it there. Um, And I, uh, I remember the night I went to my first workshop. So the way it works at Chicago is that you go to classes, you write papers and stuff like that, but then in the evenings or the afternoons sometimes there are these things called workshops, which is where grad students and professors get together more informally and somebody presents a paper just that they've written and then everybody in attendance just tears it apart. And it's kind of like a proving ground. And that's where all the real stuff takes place. It's in the workshop. It's not in the formal classes and stuff like that. So I was in my first year, and, and I was taking this historical sociology, sociology class. And the professor, a nice guy named George Steinmetz, invited me to go to the workshop that he attended. Because the dean of the School of Social Sciences was presenting a paper there. The dean of the School of Social Sciences, that was like the guy who oversaw the institution that in itself oversaw like political science and international relations, which is where I was, and sociology and psychology and you know, all of those other things. Um, and, and the dean himself was presenting a paper. So I was like, all right, I'll go, George, thanks. Um, it's his way of saying, you, know, like, you need to start practicing. These workshops, you're going to get your butt kicked, Jordan. Um, so I went there, and I kind of sat in the back respectfully and listened to this dean present his paper. Uh, and, and then he presented his ideas, his new work, and then I saw the grad students just savage him. It's like, man, that is so stupid, dean. You know, and just, and just like, I, I like, wow, this is totally disrespectful. I kind of dig it. And at one point, he was, he was, he was kind of summing up uh, the evening for us and, and what he had learned and what he had uh, been resolved to continue. And the dude broke down and started weeping. And this is the dean of the school. So this is like the big wig, like the vice president of the university, sort of. 
And he just started weeping. And he said, guys, guys, it's not like any of this matters. Uh, It's like we spend all our careers developing ideas and writing books that are going to get stuck in a library and nobody's ever going to read them, right? We're just trying to trot out ideas that get us jobs, that get us posts in academia. And he had this fit of honesty. And then he's like, well, thanks for coming. And then, you know, he just just walked out. That was the very first workshop I ever went to, the University of Chicago. And the next day I went to class and Professor George Steinmetz was there and he he intercepted me before class and said, how are you? (laughs) And I said, that that was great, George, you know, thanks for inviting me. But that was my first grad school experience. Um, And... uh, I never forgot it, and I would have my highs and lows in academia, and eventually I was told I would not have a career in academia because my ideas were not politically correct. They didn't use that term back then, but they weren't going to be politically sexy, I think, is what the chairman of uh, my dissertation said to me. Um, So I had better go investigate something else uh, to do with my life, Well, which I eventually did, and then that went wrong, and I ended up here. Can't win for losing sometimes. <laughs> I spent my entire uh, academic career, I think from then on, knowing that wisdom is broken in the world. This is the most intellectual place in America, the most intellectual place in the world, and the people who run it know, know that our institutions for gaining knowledge are broken. They know that. They know that it's shallow. They know that it's a bit of a farce. Somewhere in the middle of their investigations are truths, but they don't carry the day. You know, what carries the day is sexiness and power and politics and stuff like that. I've never forgotten that moment, and I'm just so thankful for it and the experience that I had. My brain got really muscular, but I think somehow my soul got wiser too, uh, having gone through stuff like that. I want to read today uh, some advice that Paul gave to the church in a city called Corinth, uh, which is kind of like in the Greek peninsula. Uh, Corinth was uh, a really rich city in its day. It was a sea hub. It was a commercial capital of uh, the Mediterranean and sort of uh, part of the European world. Um, There are two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we have in the Bible, and they're actually long, and they're rather detailed. Paul spent a lot of time attending to the church in Corinth. Super rich city, uh, super depraved city. Corinth was uh, famous in its day for all sorts of sexual licentiousness and experimentation. In fact, there was a verb based on the word, the name Corinth. If somebody said, oh man, he really went out last night and got Corinthed then it meant that he engaged in a certain sort of sexual practice that we won't necessarily specify in detail this morning. Um, But it was known for that. Uh, And uh, and it was a really arrogant, prideful city that thought themselves really smart on the cutting edge of technology, on the cutting edge of of philosophy. Whenever I think of Corinth, I I think of San Francisco. Uh, I was born in the Bay Area, and I think, you know, it's like the heart of Silicon Valley. It's smart. It's a financial center. It's really, really licentious and kind of world famous for that. That's Corinth. And there's a church there. And you can imagine, you know, this first century church, 
like just getting started. Barely anybody in the world knows who Jesus is at this point. And this is advice that he gives to them. First chapter of the first letter uh, to the Corinthians. Paul writing advice to a young church, young Christians in that incredibly potent city. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, that Greek word sozo, restored, to us who are being restored, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And there Paul is quoting uh, from uh, Isaiah, from an Old Testament prophet. So this is a promise that God made. This is how I'm going to deal with the most intelligent of the earth. I will frustrate their intelligence. That suits my plan, God is saying. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. That's kind of a meandering sentence. Paul would write these sentences sometimes. Let me decode it a little bit. For since in the wisdom of God, uh, for in God's plan, uh, the world through its wisdom did not know him. In God's plan, the world could not discover him just by being smart and clever. That's kind of what he's saying. Uh, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So what he's saying there is like, God planned things in such a way that know-it-alls would not be able to understand his ways. And that he would declare his truths to the world in ways that were easily mocked. That's his plan. And it's been that way since the beginning of the world, according to Paul. Are you following? Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. Uh, Christianity came out of a Jewish movement, and Corinth and most of Paul's church plants were in sort of the non-Jewish world. Uh, which is dominated by the Greeks. Jews, uh, you could think of them as people who, um, who valued their tradition and their culture a lot. And Greeks would be those who always thought they were smarter than you. Right? So it's like cultural, uh, culture worshipers and philosophy worship, worshipers or technology worshipers, stuff like that. So we still kind of have those groups of people in the world today. Uh, 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 Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, cleverness but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. What Paul is saying here implicitly is like, uh, we preach a message that is easily mocked. It looks weird. I mean, the central event of our belief is our God stripped naked, humiliated, and executed by the Romans on a torture device. Does that sound sensible to you? But if you actually look and then start to think about it and start to experience it, well, then you have 
you have discernment and validation and stuff like that because it works, right? It might look ridiculous, but if you actually follow it and go for it, it works. And what you find is that what you once thought was foolish actually ends up to make a lot of sense and be really helpful. And what you once thought was weak actually turns out stronger than man's strength. We've talked a lot about that at Blue Water over the months. It's like, actually, wherever Christianity has taken root, all of society has been tremendously blessed and elevated. And this is an inconvenient fact for those who would want to mock Christianity. You know, one of my favorite stats is, you know, by attending church regularly, your life expectancy goes up by seven years just by coming to church on Sunday. Good job. Good job. Which is as much as being a vegan increases your life expectancy. You're not gonna, huh? I don't know. You gotta, yes, if you, come, if you come to church, you don't have to be a vegan. Yeah. It's a good application point, Albert. You know, there are a lot of other churches you could go to. Also increase your life expectancy. Anyway, so it works, right? Like it seems mockable and ridiculous, but doggone it, it turns out to be really smart and really strong, and that's how it's been. And then he finishes by saying, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, Albert. Not many were influential. (laughs) Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. You didn't start out privileged, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the mockable things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, That is our righteousness, holiness, redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts uh, in the Lord. That's kind of, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful phrase. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And it's like that appeals to our fondness for the underdog, right? And yet, I think the world system despises Christianity whenever it gets a chance. And that has been true for thousands of years. They take what they want from Christianity and pretend that it was theirs all along. Anyway, great phrase, uh, excuse me, great uh, passage uh, for those of us living in a world that desires to mock Christianity and to kind of overlook what Jesus did on the cross because I mean, it is, so, it is so mockable, right? It seems so foolish. I didn't ask God to die for me. What do you mean? I'm not such a bad person. It totally missed the point. But the message of the cross is that God who made you would rather die than let your mistakes and your sin and your wickedness be a big issue between you. You have to decide for God, but he gave you the easiest decision point ever, Jesus, whom nobody dislikes, You reject Jesus not because of Jesus, you reject Jesus because you just don't like to make decisions. You resent it. That's the message of the cross.
that Paul is talking about. Why isn't God obvious? Uh, well, the short answer is because he intentionally makes himself unobvious. He intentionally makes himself look a little bit ridiculous, right? Which is what the cross typifies. This is God making himself look utterly ridiculous and despicable. He intentionally makes himself hidden, obscure uh, in the world. Why? Well, another short answer is because arrogance leads to wickedness and humility leads to cure. Right? And God wants to show uh, humility, you know, and the love and the service that's in humility because wherever humans get arrogant, they cause great destruction. Wherever they get prideful, wherever they get know-it-all, they cause tremendous destruction. And so God has injected a restorative plan in the world that requires you to be humble in order to get it, right? So that the method becomes part of the mission. The method becomes part of the cure. Humility required. Intellectual humility, social humility required if you're going to follow Jesus because humility is the antidote to the arrogance that causes such destruction on earth. Uh, humility cures wickedness. Uh, and so, uh, as it turns out, over the past 2,000 years, this thing that we call Christianity has advanced in the world largely through nameless and fameless, uh, excuse me, nameless and faceless people, which makes it totally unique among uh, world faith systems. You know, Islam did not spread in the world through nameless, faceless, humble people just serving better. I mean, uh, Islam was originated by a warlord, right? Uh, and it kind of spread through, through uh, violence. Uh, Christianity did not. Um, it's just, we'll talk more about that later in the sermon series, but there are a lot of things that make Christianity totally unique and, and things that means it should not have succeeded. We read 2,000-year-old records in which Jesus says, you guys, you illiterate fishermen are going to go out and preach the gospel to the world and all the nations will hear it and people from all over the earth will be saved. This will become a world-changing movement, which was hilarious when he said it. Hilarious, right? Because he was in you know, a pimple on the backwater of uh, the Roman Empire in a little place that didn't matter among people that did not matter. You know, the prediction is astounding. That in itself should give you pause if you really look at it, if you really look at it, that instead people explain the success of Christianity away with these glib historical answers that are actually entirely inaccurate. Um, uh, this passage is written to Corinth. It's written to those people who are tempted to be cowed, who are tempted to be beaten down and controlled by the values and the authorities of their world, right? It is very hard for any human being to stand up against a crowd that is mocking him or her, right? Every ounce of social media out there tells you that you're ridiculous, and very few people can resist it. And it's very hard for younger people to resist it. Very hard uh, for younger people to resist it. And there are all sorts of stats about that now. Um, we know that uh, to be true, peer pressure has become more pervasive than it's uh, ever been. 
And so Paul writes passages like this. He'd be like, you know what? The whole thing is designed to be mockable, that you are mocked by the know-it-alls and the rich and the elite and the academy should not be surprising to you. In fact, it's one of the secrets to our success. That's what he says. And you just got to know that going in. And if you are one of those people who are critical of Christianity, you should know that going in. That this whole thing is designed to be overlookable. But maybe if you look at it, you would learn something. Maybe if you looked at it, you would learn that it actually has worked amazingly well on planet Earth. And more than that, it tends to work amazingly well in individual lives who practice it. Now, can you prove it's true? If you could, it wouldn't be as powerful as it is. And we'll talk about that more in the series as well. Um, this is written to a bunch of people who are being beat up by the values and authorities of their world, the cultural icons, the institutional powers, the intellectual, financial, social elite, to encourage them to not accept what the world is preaching at them. And here's an insight that I want to make sure everybody understands today. The world is preaching something at you. The world is a machine. It actually is. And Jesus talked about this a lot. He would say, you know, uh, the world does this, the world does that. Or he would talk about the spirit of the age, right? The culture of the day. Constantly in opposition to the way of health, you know, way of righteousness and truth uh, that God has been revealing to us and that Jesus brought to us with particular pointedness uh, 2,000 years ago. Because the world is a cult. The world is a cult. And I want you to remember that I said that, whether you believe it or not. I want you to remember for the rest of the sermon series that I said, the world is a cult. What is a cult? A cult is a belief system bent on control. And the world, more than anything else, the machine is trying to control you. And that is a fundamental, unchanging truth on planet Earth. The way of the world is to try to control you. How? It actually doesn't care. However it can. However it can, the cultic world is trying to control you. Politically, financially, socially, philosophically, intellectually, whatever. But mostly through kind of mocking and making you feel small and peer pressure and making you feel like you have to go along with the spirit of the age, otherwise you're just being a fool. You're just buying into that foolish nonsense, that God stuff, that Christianity stuff. Hasn't stopped us for 2,000 years, certainly isn't going to stop us today, but it will pick some of us off if we're not careful because the world is a cult. The first thing uh, we learn about sin in the Bible is in the book of Genesis, and it's from the story of Cain and Abel. There's the fall, yeah, which is sort of disobedience. But uh, when Cain is contemplating murdering his brother Abel, you guys know that story, God comes to Cain and says this, sin is crouching at your door. And the Hebrew word for sin literally means harm, evil. Evil, sin is crouching at your door. It seeks to master you. 
you must master it. That's how the NIV renders the dialogue. The first thing we learn about sin is that it's controlling, right? The whole point is to control you, right? The machine, the fallenness of the world, the spirit of the age, whatever you want to call it, that, that evil wants to make you a puppet. And God's mission is to actually make you a free individual. Right? Sometimes people can, uh, accuse the church of being all controlling and stuff, and I guess unhealthy churches can be controlling. But actually, the whole point of the God mission on planet Earth is to restore you to healthy sanity and individualism so that you can have full relationship with each other and with God. Right? He wants you to actually be free. And sin wants to actually make you a puppet. And we know this because sin is addictive. Righteousness, not as addictive. <laughs> because freedom isn't addictive, right? It's in the name, right? Freedom is all about choice, about not being controlled, but being able to pilot yourself. And that's actually the Spirit of God. Um, he whom the Spirit has freed is free indeed. Right? The Spirit of God is actually freedom, choicefulness, mindfulness. Right? That's, those are all hallmarks of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit retreat in October right here. And the hallmark of the world is not freedom. Not freedom. Be free with us, which means you have to agree with us or we will ostracize you. All right, so you see the lie in the midst of it. And the world always works that way. You must master it, or it will master you. You have to make a very strong choice for God, or you will be enslaved. You will be, you'll become stupid. Sin makes you stupid, I'm fond of saying. Um, that's the opposition. And Satan seeks to control you, and the Holy Spirit seeks to restore your self-control. The world seeks to classify you, categorize you. And the Holy Spirit seeks to amplify you and individuate you. You're an actual unique person. That's the opposition that we will discover. So worldly systems, the machine, the spirits of the age are all about domination. All about domination, political, financial, social, moral, philosophical, whatever. All about domination. And God hates playground bullies, right? You guys, parents, remember when your kids were little, you'd go to the playground, and there'd be 20 kids there, and there's always one ruffian, right? There's always a kid that's kind of barreling into the other kids, kind of being all dominant and alpha in a way that's uncontrolled and harmful. Uh, and that's how the world is, right? There are all these alphas in the world, all these bullies who just aren't redeemed. They're a little bit... Um, well, they're a little bit wicked, right? Uh, people that are know-it-alls or people that maybe are financial elites or political elites and they think they know better and they just mow people down and they call you foolishness and they make you feel small and God hates bullies and the world is a freaking bully. It's a freaking bully. Either bullies win or Jesus wins. You know, the weak things, the small things, the foolish things win. And it turns out that they're strongest of all anyway because they're humble, 
creating good as opposed to arrogant creating wickedness. Am I making sense? So uh, be skeptical of any philosophy or belief system that is not God-centered. There's a high probability that any philosophy or any belief system that is not God-centered will be harmful. Because the temptation to be arrogant and controlling is immense. You know, we have that saying in our culture, we've had it for a long time, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Like we humans recognize it even in ourselves, right? You know what doesn't corrupt? Humility and service. Humility and service, typified by Jesus, making a foolish spectacle of himself on the cross. That's the message of the cross, right? And when you really look at it, when you actually look at it, it's not as mockable as you'd be tempted to think. Right? So be skeptical of any belief, any belief system, any philosophy that is not God-centered. And that might sound a bit too strident, but if you're not submitted to God, the temptation to be domineering rather than loving and true is huge. So be mindful. Uh, the world will not sit calmly with you to investigate the merits of God. Right? It doesn't do that because the world is not that open-minded. In contrast, Jesus... And we'll look at some of these passages. Jesus taught people by asking them questions. Did you notice that? It's very rarely that Jesus made assertions. He responded to questions with questions. He taught people by encouraging them to seek answers as opposed to just dominating them. Jesus never did that. You notice that in the gospel stories? Jesus was like, here's a semi-confusing story. I'm going to be over here, right? And then the ones who responded will walk up to him and say, I don't quite understand that. Ah, to you have been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I'm actually quoting from him. Um, he taught us to seek honestly. The world does not teach you that. The world teaches you to believe things that help you to fit in and become powerful completely different spirit. And I just want to identify the spirit of the world versus the spirit of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Okay? Uh, so the world does not encourage you to investigate honestly the merits of God's existence and his ways. Um, the world dominates. God leads. The world dominates. God leads. Two very different styles of leadership. God will lead you forward. The world puts you in your place. Jesus prepares a place for you. Entirely different approaches. Entirely different. I just want to make that distinction clear up front. And the practical difference for your life is that if you want to follow God, instead of going along with the crowd, you're going to have to make decisions. Choiceful decisions. Living is the path to truth. To experience validation, triangulation, discernment, you'll discover that it actually works because people have been discovering that it's powerful for 2,000 years. It is not by accident that a bunch of powerless, uneducated fishermen have all but taken over the planet. 
uh, in terms of faith systems. Right? Think about it. That cannot be accidental. That did not happen at the point of a spear. Almost always, the powers of the world have been arrayed against it, against Christianity. And yet, and yet, find me a corner of the earth where it does not live. Find me a corner of the earth where people are not sacrificing for it. Find me a corner of the earth where there aren't miraculous things happening. Oh, yeah, I know, they don't get publicized on YouTube. But if YouTube were the arbitrator of reality, where would we be? <laughs> right? It will all be ignored as much as possible. You will be ignored as much as possible. As much as possible. But I'm going to explore uh, some of how that works in the upcoming sermon series. Uh, what I want to encourage you to do is to use the next six, eight weeks, the eight, ten weeks we'll be doing this sermon series, and I'm going to invite you, if you're a veteran believer, to lead someone to Christ. Right? Not to dominate someone into agreeing with you. That's never been the way. But to actually lead through love and service and question asking and above all, invitation. Above all, invitation. We're set up for it. Invite someone to come and to listen to these sermon series. Uh, we'll be sending out little video teases and stuff like that. But the harvest is ripe. And uh, in the season of the ripe harvest, Jesus encouraged his followers to pray for um, the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. So I'm just inviting you to be workers and to kind of be willing to be mockable and to appear foolish, but to lead nonetheless to show people what direction to go. Maybe you say to one of your friends, um, if you feel like you might not be getting the whole story in life, dot, 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 or something like that. Because one thing I think about this season and in the world, and particularly in our country, is that people have developed this disturbing feeling like maybe they're not getting the whole truth. Do you sense that? Do you think that's true? It's like, this has just gotten so crazy that there must be some missing key somewhere, you know? And the world always overplays its hand, is the thing, you know? They're so serious, they mock us, they mock us, they mock us, they mock Christianity, they mock God, they're all about power, and then, and then they like trip over their own feet, and we're like, yep, still here, still here. Still leading uh, toward Jesus. Yeah, mock it if you want, but I bet it works. I bet, I bet it will make sense of your life. I bet it will establish you in life, health, wisdom. Plus, did I mention there's an eternity? You know, and maybe through that spirit and that kind of confidence, you can actually lead someone uh, to come to uh, a place of transformation, uh, which is what uh, a church is. Yes? Um, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and minister to us as a crowd this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, and just speak uh, your words. Your leadership to those of us who are inclined to follow you and to try. 
Maybe in your heart of hearts you could speak uh, to the Lord this morning uh, with some resolve. And maybe the curative prayer that you need is a very simple one. Just to say to the Creator God, I don't trust the world. I trust you. The world feels sick. You, Father, feel healthy. More, Lord. Any of the uh, prophetic elders have words they want to share to individuals? And can I have the prayer ministry team come forward, please? You want to share, Karen? Thanks, clock. We'll give you a mic, Karen. Karen doesn't like microphones, but... Um, I think this might be a word for somebody who, like... You've been either been getting a warning signal or the dog has been telling you, watch out, watch out. But like there's this thing that is hidden and it's, it's there, it's small. It's just this little thing in a box and that's what you gotta pay attention to. So you got like the moon illuminating stuff, you got the dog barking, barking at someone breaking your house. But anyways, there's something else and God, is, God wants to help you with that. So I'll be willing to pray with you. On that. I love Karen's painting so much. Um, but there, there's a great truth here. It was like, look, if there's something harmful in your life, you will never be without warning. Right? The Holy Spirit, your Father, will always warn you. But like everything else He does, maybe the warnings aren't overpoweringly, domineeringly obvious. But if you just think about it, you'll notice, oh, there's a dog barking. It's like the danger is being illuminated, if not by the sun, then by the moon, right? There's, there's some warning for you, and with a little faith, you'll be able to see it. And maybe this painting will help you be honest about the discomfort that you're feeling about X or Y uh, in your life. And maybe that painting is for you. Maybe you need to take it home and meditate on it and, and put it up on your wall as an emblem of how the Holy Spirit guides you.